It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, September 24, 2020. On today's episode, the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here to talk about the uh, movies and career of Steven Spielberg. Now, this is part two of Steven's talk. You can hear part one, uh, which aired on uh, September 10, 2020. That's episode 118. 118. You can look for that at SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcast. Here then is Stephen Tomlinson. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Coast St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be presenting the conclusion to my two-part series on the films of Steven Spielberg, one of Hollywood's most important living filmmakers. In part one, I discussed his movies of the 1970s and early 1980s, such films as Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., The Extra Terrestrial. I talked about how, with such films, Spielberg helped change Hollywood filmmaking in creating old-style, family-friendly B-movie fantasy adventure stories with a definite A-level craftsmanship and sophistication, all made possible with increasingly large budgets and enhanced with the latest developments in special effects. Basically, what he did was help make movies fun again in appealing to a child's sense of wonder in us all. After a 10-year period in which Hollywood filmmaking had been much more concerned with serious, adult-oriented themes. With the very great success, both critically and commercially, of E.T. in the summer of 1982, the very name Spielberg became a kind of brand name signifier for a certain kind of entertainment. And so there would be several films in the 1980s that would trade heavily on his name as both producer or executive producer. The best of these being Poltergeist, Gremlins, the Back to the Future films, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, all made between 1982 and 1988. But other Spielberg-backed films in this period could also be a little derivative, bland, and more than a little sentimental. All traits that I think can be found in some lesser Spielberg-directed films to come. Indeed, in a film that he directed himself, the sequel Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which came out in the summer of 1984, he met, for the first time really, with some critical and slight box office disappointment. And there would also be some controversy over its suitability for children, as there was for the Joe Dante-directed Spielberg-produced Gremlins, also from 1984, that led, in the case of both films, to the introduction of the PG-13 rating in the United States. PG-13 meaning the qualification, parents strongly cautioned, some material may be inappropriate for children. At around the same time, Spielberg was also engulfed in another controversy, this time over the movie Poltergeist, made in 1982, which Toby Hooper directed, but Spielberg wrote in part and co-produced. Now, the film is a ghost story that is, in some ways, a scary version of E.T., in that it strongly resembles Spielberg's work in general, in being 
focused on the family, a family under threat, and the subsequent suggestions that he had effectively directed the film by proxy proved highly damaging to Hooper's emerging directorial career. And unfortunately, the many films that imitated the success of Spielberg's work in this period, some of them produced by Spielberg himself, as I pointed out, only served to reinforce the perception that his influence over filmmaking in general had led to a drastic degradation of Hollywood's more adult-oriented tendencies. Yet, there were signs that Spielberg was taking that criticism to heart, and following Temple of Doom, he would turn to more self-consciously important material. But in doing so, it would also be the start of a shaky period in terms of both critical and audience reception. Now, perhaps it is to Spielberg's credit that he attempted it, but his adaptation of Alice Walker's The Color Purple from 1985 arguably doesn't work all that well. As Stephen Rowley writes in his work on Steven Spielberg in Senses of Cinema, the watering down of some of the content about the life of a poor young black woman who struggles to escape the physical and sexual abuse inflicted, first by her father and then by her husband, in the rural south of the United States in the early 20th century, is one problem. But the more crucial failures are stylistic. Spielberg seems to have responded to the emotional drama at the heart of the story. But in trying to bring that out, he turns the film into a bit of a melodrama. Walker's novel is written in a rough, earthy, first-person style that is appropriate to the harshness of the material. But Spielberg adopts a rather more lyrical, and sweeping visual style to convey the story that is not far removed from that of something like, say, Gone with the Wind. Nevertheless, his adaptation does have some very memorable highs. And the one we may remember most is when Whoopi Goldberg's Seely finally snaps, pulls a knife on Danny Glover's abusive Albert, and curses him. Until you do right by me, everything you think about is going to crumble, she says. One of my own favorite Spielberg films is Empire of the Sun, made in 1987, which was an important new step for him in establishing a more mature, stylistic voice. Still deeply underrated, this is an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's semi-autobiographical novel of the same title, which tells the story of a precocious British boy named Jim and his premature introduction to a grown-up world while confined to a prison camp at the time of the Japanese invasion of Shanghai in 1941. Spielberg had inherited the project from David Lean, who had started to develop it, but then abandoned it when he couldn't adapt the story to his own satisfaction. But in the hands of Spielberg, the resulting film is, I think, a more successful adaptation than Spielberg's preceding one. Where the color purple seemed betrayed by its visual style, in Empire of the Sun, Spielberg better uses his visual talent in aid of the original material. For example, 
The beautiful, almost dreamlike photography is used to suggest Jim's imaginatively heightened view of the world. When he, for example, pretends to pilot a crashed plane, his toy glider soars around impossibly like an enemy aircraft. It is, as Andrew Gordon has written, a fantasy, a child's dream of war, but one in which, crucially, harsh reality continually intrudes. For example, unlike Jim, we in the audience see the one-sidedness of his relationship with the John Malkovich character, who exploits Jim's devotion for his own ends. So Empire of the Sun is, despite its child's eye view of the world, one of the most knowing and grown-up of Spielberg's films, certainly in the first half of his career. It contains some of the most powerful moments the director ever made. One such is where young Jim witnesses the dead body of Mrs. Victor, Miranda Richardson's character, then sees a flash of light in the sky. He assumes it to be her soul going up to heaven, though it's actually the flash of the atomic bomb being dropped on nearby Nagasaki. It's at the same time both a disturbing and oddly hopeful moment in showing us a child whose own hope and imagination haven't been crushed by the horrors of war. Another one of the film's most strangely beautiful moments comes as Jim, still interred in the prison camp, late in the war, sees a group of Japanese pilots perform a kamikaze ritual before getting into their planes. He salutes them, then sings a Welsh folk song, only to soon see one of the planes explode in midair, which signals an Allied raid. There's so much going on here, so many confused feelings and emotions, and Spielberg somehow puts you straight into Jim's head to absorb them all. That's great filmmaking. Yet, Empire of the Sun never found its audience failing to achieve even the level of connection with a certain sector of people that the color purple had found. So after two consecutive attempts to broaden his range, Spielberg had still failed to receive widespread recognition as an important artistic, rather than just phenomenally popular, filmmaker. Indeed, his critical reception only cooled as he tried to pursue these projects and others such as the films Always from 1989 and Hook from 1991. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, however, which came out in the summer of 1989 and was his second sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, remains one of Spielberg's most singularly pleasurable films, particularly in the genial, friction-filled dynamic set up between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery as father and son characters in the film. But if the movies Always and Hook had suggested that Spielberg's Midas touch was not always a sure thing, either artistically or at the box office, then he provided the best possible response in 1993. Spielberg had had a turnaround like this before, when he followed the financial and critical flop that was his movie 1941 with Raiders of the Lost Ark two years later. However, where Raiders had been embraced by critics and public alike, in 1993 Spielberg provided commercial and artistic breakthroughs on two separate fronts. Jurassic Park marked his commercial resuscitation of a kind, 
becoming the highest grossing film ever up until that time. And within months, he followed it up with Schindler's List, which would win him his first of two Oscars as Best Director. Jurassic Park, which is a very family-friendly story revolving around a wildlife park of cloned dinosaurs, was not just phenomenally popular, but also something of a technical breakthrough. Audiences had seen rudimentary computer-generated special effects before, but they always looked kind of cheesy. But Jurassic Park's dinosaurs actually looked real, or at least somewhat real. So it's really quite something what Spielberg and his technical people were able to pull off back then, given, it is said, the processing power available at that time. And the results really revolutionized effects technology and also influenced the video games industry as well. And it is said, too, that it helps speed up improvements in processor speed for everyday applications, believe it or not. Jurassic Park is also a reminder that modern blockbusters have plenty of spectacle, and people might call them awesome, but there's often very little actual awe in them these days. That wow factor is something that Spielberg has always been great at, and here he keeps the reveal of the dinosaurs until quite some way into the film, amusingly letting the characters become bored and disappointed at first, and then as John Williams' music kicks in, they suddenly spot a giant dinosaur. And things kick off from there. And as always in Spielberg, it's a character's boyish excitement embodied in the film by Sam Neill that really conveys it as a moment of real wonder. Schindler's List, also from 1993, is, of course, the real-life story of the German industrialist Oscar Schindler, played in the film by Liam Neeson, who used his munitions factory as a front to save more than a thousand Jewish lives during the Holocaust. The film was the climax not only of Spielberg's long quest to be taken seriously as an artistic filmmaker, but also as a foregrounding of his own Jewish heritage that had not been in much evidence in those earlier movies. Now, with such a serious subject, Spielberg was potentially on very dangerous ground here. He could not have made a film with such typical trademarks as his fluid camera movement and soaring musical score, but instead had to provide a much more restrained form of direction. So to facilitate a more sober treatment, he had the film shot in austere black and white by cinematographer Janusz Kaminski. And perhaps for this reason, the film frequently has the feel of a documentary without, of course, being so. While Steven Spielberg's storytelling instincts are always in evidence, his single contribution here is, I think, to convey the subject matter by means of a largely more prosaic filmic style that does not call attention to itself, mostly, but also with an unflinching eye as the horrors unfold. Now, this, it must be said, is not how everyone has seen the film. One strain of criticism of Schindler's List is that by focusing on the story of those who survived, the film obscures the real horrors of the Holocaust. And as such, the film was heavily criticized by, among others, Claude Lanzmann, director of the documentary Shoah, and the critic Jay Hoberman in The Village Voice, the latter, the latter of whom described Schindler's List as, and I quote here, a feel-good entertainment about the ultimate feel-bad experience, end quote. Montreal's own Mordecai Rickler, Richler was also particularly scathing in his comments about the film. But while such criticisms flow understandably from the depth of feeling provoked by such a subject matter, they remain, I think, 
somewhat unfair. Well, I think it's true that the film is rendered bearable by the fact that it focuses on survivors' stories. It's equally true that it never glosses over the horror of what is occurring around them. Now, the scene of the girl in the red coat is one that such commentators have objected to, believing it to be a scene of pure emotional manipulation, a characteristic Spielbergian touch that that really does call attention to itself in a film otherwise so restrained and not served by such cinematic flourishes. But I don't think this is fair, even in this instance. I mean, in a film otherwise shot in black and white, seeing one girl's coat in muted red feels to me very effective and illustrates, I think, very effectively how Liam Neeson's character as Schindler had previously closed his eyes to the suffering all around him until the one face in the crowd, a child's face, makes him realize the true horror of what is going on. So instead, I would see this as a directorial decision informed entirely by the movie's theme, that he who saves one life saves the world entire. And so the result later on is the girl in the red coat is glimpsed being taken away on a wagon dead is an extremely gut-wrenching one. Now, after the horrors depicted in Schindler's List, you could perhaps excuse the director for wanting to let a little light shine in at the end of the film, which is something else he has been criticized for. But again, to me, this feels utterly earned, as not the criticism itself, but the um, but um, the the less than completely bleak ending. When Neeson's Schindler is, 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 you know, bad farewell by his workers who give him a, a ring as a gift, you know, um, a ring that has that thematic quote from the Talmud, you know, that he who saves one life saves the world entire. It's, it's enormously moving stuff, but, you know, it, Spielberg is also quite cannily keeping the complications in as when Neeson weeps and wonders, if he might have done more and saved more lives. So it's certainly not a completely uplifting ending. It's, it's far from that. And I think uh, quite in truth and in keeping with the uh, larger, larger theme of the movie. And it's also important, too, I think, to note that Steven Spielberg has also helped to archive important real-life footage as well as survivor testimonials via, via the Steven Spielberg Film and Video Archive of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Certainly, then, Schindler's List stands apart from his other work and has an importance and a quality that means it transcends its place as a Spielberg movie. Indeed, the paradox that it presented for Spielberg as a filmmaker is that his most honored film, was so unlike anything else he had ever made, at least up until that point. He was effectively being saluted here in 1993 for rejecting the approach of his earlier work. And it is perhaps not surprising that he felt the need to pause. He took, by his standards, a comparatively long break between films after Schindler's List, waiting again until 1997, to release further work. In this case, 
both the movies The Lost World, his Jurassic Park sequel, and Amistad. Now, this lengthy duration only increased the anticipation about how he would follow up Schindler's List. And the answer was a repeat of the 1993 template. A Jurassic Park sequel for the North American summer, and then a serious issue movie, the anti-slavery drama Amistad, later in the year. It was as if Spielberg had internalized the constant belittling of his genre films, but not wanting to give them up, and had decided to alternate. So Spielberg, A, would produce important films with serious messages and an adult tone, while Spielberg, B, would make more, quote-unquote, disposable fluff. Not that it is that, (laughs) of course. Anything so enjoyable and so... um, well-made and stands the test of time, certainly can't be dismissed uh, so simply. They're classics of another kind. Now, while, as Stephen Rowley points out, this variation of subject matter is commendable in theory, in practice, Spielberg's output in these years shows the pitfalls of a one-for-art, one-for-the-masses approach. It means that the commercial movies can roll off the production line appearing, as his Jurassic Park sequel did, to be of a filmmaker who is not taking the project entirely seriously, while the important movies can seem a little stuffy and self-important, as does Amistad, at least to some extent. But Spielberg's subsequent film, Saving Private Ryan, from 1998, is, I think, much more successful. It focuses on a squad of soldiers sent to retrieve a fellow soldier from the battlefield after all of his brothers have been killed, with their mission forcing an examination of the way in which different lives are weighed against each other. Unlike Amistad or even Schindler's List, this was a subject matter that required Spielberg to employ all of his filmmaking gifts to their fullest extent. Where those films relied for their impact largely on the unflinching, unadorned exposure of horrific events, Saving Private Ryan works because of its visceral immersion in the horrifying realities of warfare. And to that extent, it's very much an anti-war movie. The most memorable sequence happens near the film's beginning, depicting as it does the amphibious assault on Omaha Beach on D-Day, And it is as gut-wrenching and de-glorifying a depiction of combat that you will ever see in the movies. Now, this scene was realized through very careful and expert deployment of a wide range of visual and sound techniques, such as documentary-like shaky handheld camera work, which yields a disorientating effect to convey the chaos and the confusion of being engulfed in mass violence. Now, while Saving Private Ryan missed out on an Academy Award for Best Picture, it did earn Spielberg his second Best Director Oscar. The recognition seemed to have a positive effect on his films, and perhaps it satisfied him that Schindler's List had been neither a fluke nor an unearned victory, 
But whatever the reason, Spielberg's output has settled in the years since, for the most part, avoiding the wild swings in quality and approach that marked his work in the 1990s. I mean, only a confident filmmaker, for example, could have taken on his next film, An Uncompleted Project by Stanley Kubrick. AI, Artificial Intelligence, in 2001. This was a movie that Kubrick had delayed the production of um, for many years, throughout the 90s, in fact, citing the inability of available special effects technology to realize his vision. Throughout its development, he had discussed the project with Spielberg. And when Kubrick died in 1999, Spielberg took the project on as his first film as a writer-director since Close Encounters of the Third Kind, way back in 1977. AI is... At once a dazzling and very puzzling work, and it has divided both critics and audiences since its release, although the general weight of opinion, certainly 20 years ago, leaned towards the negative. Now, this is perhaps not entirely surprising. Its structure, with a a grim and quite intellectual center wrapped up in a sentimental fairy tale presentation, quite unique to that extent, both reworks and references the tale of Pinocchio itself. If nothing else, AI is an extremely ambitious work that almost seems calculated to confound audiences. <laughs> almost, almost as bad as Tenet today. Now, Spielberg followed up AI with another science fiction film uh, in 2002, Minority Report, an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick short story, and the film certainly echoes other Dick-inspired films, such as Blade Runner and Total Recall, and its utilization of a science fiction conceit to explore a very complicated philosophical concept. Um, A marvelous film, nevertheless, it certainly has um, more, slightly more conventional generic implications than did AI, uh, and so perhaps for that reason did a little better at the box office. And I would think considered simply as a story, it was the strongest material Spielberg had worked with for several years. And he, he certainly seemed to have seized upon it with a relish. The film features a number of typically well-executed action sequences, but Spielberg also had a lot of fun with it occasionally, with its occasionally ghoulish humor, I think it's fair to say. The whole tone of the film, nevertheless, is yet another challenge to the perception of Spielberg as a relentlessly cheery filmmaker. I mean, that's something we associate with his early years, but I, certainly that really can't be said in relation to his entire 50-year career. The future world presented in Minority Report is quite grim, and its hero, really its anti-hero, is quite misguided. And its message, the message of the film, really downbeat. I mean, it rejects the notion that there are easy solutions to society's problems. And really, the film depicts, uh, you know, a, a world in which civil liberties are quite easily trampled upon in order to ostensibly protect the population at large. And that's, that's a notion we're dealing with even more today than, than was um, present 20 years ago. Nevertheless, after the generally dark tone of his previous few titles, Spielberg's next two films, Catch Me If You Can in 2002 and The Terminal from 2004, saw something of a return to good spirits for him, with 
it has to be said, differing degrees of success. Now, based on a true story, Catch Me If You Can tells of a young man, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who conned his way into a series of highly unqualified jobs in the 1960s, and of the federal agent, played by Tom Hanks, who pursued him. The resulting film here certainly has quite a jaunty bounce to it, and turns on the audience's enjoyment of the DiCaprio character's chutzpah in pulling off these cons. And to that extent, the film really breezes along, supported by John Williams' Henry Mancini-esque musical score. Now, relatively a minor work, Catch Me If You Can, is, I would say, certainly one of Spielberg's most finely judged and entertaining movies of the second half of his 50-year career. But the terminal, in contrast, is a bit of a mess. An aberration in an otherwise strong period in the director's career It's a feel-good fable about a man played by Tom Hanks, who's now a regular by this time in the director's work, who becomes a stateless person while in transit and thus becomes stranded in an airport lounge. For such a serious subject, the tone of the film is just too flippant, and it doesn't work, not at all. Perhaps Spielberg's weakest film since Hook, more than 10 years earlier. War of the Worlds from 2005 is much more interesting, I think, and very underrated. Spielberg's adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel of the same name about an alien invasion is something of a companion piece to the filmmaker's very own Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But whereas Close Encounters tells of a visitation by friendly aliens, War of the Worlds is, in comparison, a grim and bitter counterpoint. While War of the Worlds unwinds Somewhat in its last third, the film is, until then at least, a shining example of Spielberg at the top of his game. His approach here is to treat the premise quite seriously and follow how regular citizens respond as the crisis unfolds. Its apocalyptic vision draws not only on Spielberg's previous movies about World War II and the Holocaust, but also on the atmosphere of foreboding that followed the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Today, the use of 9-11 imagery in movies is so common that it feels almost cliched. But when Spielberg did it less than four years after the attacks, and in a big-budget blockbuster no less, it was a little shocking, even transgressive. And while the special effects haven't aged all that well, they're, they're very much in service to the story. And there's still a very particular horror in the indiscriminate nature of the creature attacks especially in the way they vaporize their victims into white dust, which ends up covering the sympathetic everyman protagonist played by Tom Cruise, and hence one of the more obvious 9-11 comparisons. Particularly memorable is one astonishing, unbroken mobile tracking shot as characters flee down a freeway in a stolen car. And it's the kind of bravura technical flourish for which Spielberg is truly known. But one of the film's most frightening sequences doesn't involve the aliens at all, but instead shows the Tom Cruise character having to defend his children from a marauding mob. And in a moment such as this, the film is extremely convincing in its depiction of society's breakdown. It also recalls the prevailing motif of that threat to the family that runs through so many of Spielberg's movies. Munich, which came out in 2006, was quite controversial. But to me, it's just the right tone for 21st century Spielberg. It starts out as an exciting thriller, one where it's easy to know who to root for. 
But Spielberg catches us in our thirst for violence and turns the plot around to show how bloodshed begets more of the same, and that no one emerges unscathed. Morally complex, but still exhilarating, the director's cinematic brilliance is here in full force. And with Munich, he seemed more clearly than ever to want to speak to the adult in us rather than the child. But after that, perhaps stung by the criticism of his two earlier films, things definitely slowed down for Spielberg, and he returned to ostensibly safer material, making only another Raiders of the Lost Ark sequel with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008, which is widely regarded as a great disappointment, before returning to cinemas three years later in 2011 with The Adventures of Tintin, a visually dazzling but otherwise disappointing adaptation of the legendary comic book series. But also in 2011, he made War Horse, a much better film, I think, than those two recent misfires. It's a nakedly heartfelt, beautifully composed story set before and during World War I, which tells of the journey of Joey, a thoroughbred horse raised by a British teenager before he's bought by the British Army, leading him to encounter numerous individuals and owners throughout Europe all the while experiencing the tragedies of the war happening all around him. War Horse definitely has some astonishing sequences, especially the one in which a foolish cavalry charge on machine-gun-holding Germans costs the life of Tom Hiddleston's Captain Nichols, and demonstrably, demonstrably shows the naivete of the British as a new era of warfare approaches. The simplicity of the editing from Hiddleston's despairing broken face to the muzzle flare of the gun to a horse with no rider is especially very impressive. You know, it's funny. People used to ask, especially in the 1980s and early 1990s, when will Steven Spielberg grow up? But his films of the last 10 years have focused, with some exceptions, like the BFG and Ready Player One, on older characters faced with ethical dilemmas. Now, while always a technical virtuoso, Spielberg's characteristic sense of visual awe has given way, for the most part, to movies that are more talky and nuanced than ever before, especially in relation to his heyday of the 1970s and early 80s. In movies like Lincoln from 2012, Bridge of Spies from 2015, and The Post from 2017, he's definitely shifted focus from the vivid imagination of awestruck discovery, what we mean with the very adjective Spielbergian, towards the complexity, more than hinted at, in Minority Report, of being a responsible citizen. Gone now mostly are the popcorn flicks of old, and in their place are historical dramas filled with the hard lessons of social conscience. And something new is required by audience members in watching these films. Patience. It's a truly marvelous film, but there isn't a lot of flash to Bridge of Spies. The closest thing it has to a standout set piece is the opening, a virtually dialogue-free sequence that tracks Mark Rylance's spy character through an impeccably realized 1960s Brooklyn as he picks up a coded message while being tracked by American agents. Now, it's not quite a full-on suspense sequence, but it is a lovely immersion into the film's period and time, and an early showcase for Rylance, who won an Oscar for his performance. 
You know, after going 40 years without any of his actors ever winning a single Oscar, Spielberg's Lincoln had also managed this feat, with Daniel Day-Lewis winning a Best Actor Oscar in the title role. Yet, in many ways, we're all still living in the entertainment world that Spielberg had helped to create, for better or worse. I mean, really, the omniscient superhero franchises of today are really his offspring, aren't they? As he has himself in the last 10 years become something of a more grounded filmmaker, predominantly interested in irony of ironies, grown-up stories, like Lincoln, like The Post, like Bridge of Spies. Not that he, he still doesn't do the occasional crowd-pleaser from time to time, or would-be crowd-pleaser, uh, as these films don't make the same type of money that they did in years past. So it'll also be interesting to see what he achieves with his first musical, a remake of West Side Story, which I've just learned today has been rescheduled from a December 2020 release to uh, a much later release date of December 2021. Now, while it while it's very easy to fall in love with movies like E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, who doesn't love those films? It may take a certain acknowledgement of the responsibilities of adulthood to fully appreciate movies much less popular, like The Post, like Lincoln. People used to watch Spielberg movies to get away from real life for a few hours. But in The Post, that Spielbergian sense of magic of old is mostly absent. And exciting set pieces are replaced with dialogue-heavy scenes. Now, such movies are not as much fun as his much earlier films, of course. And the new dangers that seemingly occupy his mind are not snakes and sharks, but the rather more serious ideas around the miscarriage of justice and the absence of democracy. Certainly not anything as immediately compelling as a killer shark or a stranded alien. Yet the heroes, or should we just call them protagonists, because they do not seem obviously heroic in any standard cinematic way. They still want to do the right thing for their country, for their world, but especially for their family. All in all, it's especially ironic that where he was once blamed by many critics for edging Hollywood away from small-scale, socially conscious dramas, he is now himself making them. So, for better or worse, I think it's safe to say that Steven Spielberg has finally grown up after all. Okay, that's it, folks. I'm going to draw a conclusion here to part two of my two-part series on the films of Steven Spielberg, for which I'd like to credit in part Stephen Rowley's writing in Senses of Cinema. And I'd also like to point out that all of these Steven Spielberg movies are available to watch from the library, both on DVD and on Blu-ray in many cases. You've been listening to Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next week for more movie talk. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. 
As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.